Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, for your grace, for your word, for this place you've given us to gather that uh, has air conditioning and is comfortable and we can gather as a family in you. And thank you that um, you have revealed yourself to us. You've given us your word. You've provided the Holy Spirit. You haven't left us comfortless or without help or hope in the world, but we can have an abundant life through Jesus. Thank you that you did send your only begotten son, that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. And Lord, as your children, as your adopted family, we gather and we praise and honor your name because you are awesome. You are worthy, worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. And so we pray, Lord, you would fill us with your spirit and give us understanding of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in the book of Amos today, if you want to turn there. A new book. While I was at camp, there was one point where I asked, I suppose it was a rhetorical question, but I asked the kids, is God under any obligation to save sinners? And someone immediately said, yes. And I'm like, no, (laughs) he's not under obligation to do so, but he wants to, and he's given us a way through Christ. Our conscience condemns us. God's word, it shows that we are sinners, but there is salvation through Christ and how good it is to uh, live by grace through faith in him. We just finished Hosea, which was a, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom. And so following on from that, we are going to Amos, who also was a prophet to the northern kingdom. So there's a lot that I don't have to reset as far as time frame. It's the same. It's within a couple years of Hosea's ministry. One thing I love about Amos is it's an example of how a servant has no right to dictate how he's going to serve. He was a common guy. He was a worker among the sheep herders. And, and sometimes we think, I'm best suited for this. This is where I fit. This is where I shine. And God will use you in that place. But he'll also put you in a situation, sometimes call you to something that is uncomfortable, where you feel, I am totally unsuited for this. I am completely out of my depth. So that in that place, you rely upon God and realize any fruitfulness that comes, any benefits, seen or unseen, are by God's grace. It's him doing it. God can work his wonders then, because when we're weak, we're strong, because it's him in us. So God, he's the sovereign who decides when and where and how he's going to use his servants, and it's our call to answer, to do the things that he tells us. So the time frame, like I said, a contemporary Hosea, uh, I've seen numbers ranging from like 785 to 760 BC. He was a prophet during the long reign of Uzziah, that was 52 years, um, and also Jeroboam II in Samaria, 41 years. So they're right during the middle of these very long and prosperous reigns. It was, um, the, the northern kingdom was at the peak of its power at this point because they had control of trade routes. There was this uh, emergence of an upper class, which meant the rich were getting richer and the poor were being exploited. And the kingdoms had been separated into north and south by, for about 150 years by this point. So they were well established with their, well, in the north, their idolatrous worship. And um, it was quite a boom, an economic boom at this time. And ironically, at a time when morality was declining, religion was flourishing, right? The sacrifices are being made. People are really into the feasts and getting together and giving their offerings and 
They were offering at the high places unto the Lord and to all these idols instead of going to Jerusalem as God had commanded. And the prosperity they experienced made them feel immune to disaster. They felt like, man, we've got this and life is good. And there was no threats on the horizon. The prophetic ministry of Amos, it spanned only a year or two. But the impact of those words continue to be felt to this day. So let's jump in. Amos chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. All we know about Amos in the Bible is in the book of Amos. There's no other mention of him in any other place. We don't know exactly where he's from. We don't know what tribe he hailed from. Uh, all we know is he was among the sheep breeders. And this is, an, this is a word that is, it's like a herdsman. There's a, a very common word for shepherd. This isn't that word. Uh, it would be someone who would mark the sheep that were used for the breeding program. So he would be selectively breeding the sheep. Um, so not necessarily a shepherd. He wasn't claiming to be like the shepherd of Israel or anything. He's saying, this was my job, and I was among them. He wasn't necessarily the best one or the chief one. He was just among the workers in this role. He was a humble man. If he was wealthy or of great status, you wouldn't know it by the things that he says. We're not told his genealogy, but that he worked in Tekoa, which is about 15 Ks south of Jerusalem. And much of his prophecy was uttered in Bethel, which is where one of the shrines was on the southern area of the northern kingdom. In chapter 7, we read he had this job of tending sycamore fruit, possibly a side job to earn some extra money. I love how God chooses people from all walks of life to do his work. That God called David, a shepherd boy, to be king over Israel, that he called a eunuch cupbearer named Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Like that's not anything he had any experience doing, but in 52 days it was done. Jesus called fishermen and a tax collector to be his followers, not the scribes or the Pharisees who were well learned in the law. He called a Jewish Pharisee, Paul, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Like God just has this marvelous way of taking people from one place and who do one thing and saying, you know what, Amos, I'm roaring from Jerusalem and you're my mouthpiece. Just you're among the sheep herders, but I've got some words to say and God gave him this vision. And this idea of using the humble thing or these, the weak things, we see that in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, where Paul writes, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." God came to earth as a baby. That's a small thing, not a despised thing. We love babies, but 
you think, if you were going to conquer sin and death, wouldn't you come with just a show of force, a show of strength? But Jesus humbled himself and became a servant of all. And he, he laid down his life on Calvary so that we could live through him. He confounded the Pharisees with his wisdom, though he was unlearned in their estimation, but he was wiser than them all. Gentiles viewed as no better than dogs by the Jews in the ancient world. They demonstrated faith and boldness in God and for Jesus Christ gave their lives and spent their lives proclaiming the truth of the gospel. The Gentiles, those who were cut off and out of the commonwealth of God, God said, you're mine and you're part of my flock now and I'm going to use you. Amos had no training. He had no aspiration to be a prophet. But God called him to speak forth his word to nations. And God did not allow a word to fall to the ground. It's all God's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And God has things he also wants you to do. Things that are totally unknown and, and you've never aspired to. You never thought that that would be the thing God would have you do. Um, to love that person. To humble yourself. To do things that are totally contrary to your nature for his glory. Verse 1, it says that Amos spoke two years before an earthquake. It's likely the earthquake mentioned in Zechariah 14.5, where he says, you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now, if you've ever been in an earthquake, you've got to run really fast to get away from it. Like, running is pretty pointless. Uh, you need to, like, fly. You need to go, like, you've got to get off the ground, and when the ground's shaking, it's hard to run. And so Amos said, the Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, the top of Carmel withers. So he's roaring against the idolatry in the land, but not just, he, would, he has plenty to say against Israel, but he will single out five other nations um, that we're going to look at today. And Amos, being a man of the field, he uses a lot of these analogies. He would have been really familiar with the sound of a roar. He knows the bleeding of sheep and the oxen and the birds. He could, he could listen and tell you what bird is making that sound. But when a lion roars, it gets your attention because that roar is coming between those sharp teeth and powerful jaws, and your job is to protect the sheep. And that lion is hungry, and he's close, and everyone's on edge. And so he's like, God is roaring from Jerusalem. He's saying it loud, and he wants everyone to hear it because judgment is coming, nations. Carmel, that was a very fruitful mountain. It says the top of it withers when he roars. And if that productive, fruitful area would wither, what about the plains? Like it was, there was judgment coming from God and, and he, in his grace, warned them. And the awesome thing is we have a choice if we're going to be on the lion's side or not. If we're going to choose to align ourselves with him or if we're going to just try to run from it. It's like if you run from the lion... That stirs up the instincts to pounce and to bite and uh, will tear you apart. But when, we come, when God roars and we drop our idols and we bow before him in reverence and repentance, then we're on his side and he'll protect us. He'll provide for us as his beloved subjects. So Amos 1 verse 3, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment 
because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Evin, and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. The people of Syria shall go captive to Kerr, says the Lord. We're going to see sprinkled throughout this chapter and the next, this repetition of for three transgressions and for four. This phrase is not just in the Bible. We see it in many secular sources as well. And it's not saying, oh, you sinned once or you sinned twice, but it's again and again and again. Adam Clark's commentary, it says, Servius made this remark, oh, thrice and four times, that is very often a finite number for an infinite. So it was something to say time and time again. It's not just for one problem. It's, it's a countless amount. It's more than what can be counted. The Jameson Fawcett Brown it says this, this may also be a reference to seven, the product of three and four added, seven expressing the full completion of the measure of their guilt. God had said in the law, he says, if you continue to disobey, yet seven times more I will punish you for your transgressions. So it's something we see throughout scripture. And he's roaring against Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Ammon, and Moab. All these countries that were either within Israel surrounding Israel, it reminds us that they were totally surrounded by enemies. There were enemies and people who had uh, really victimized them over the years and hurt them. And the Bible says our God is a consuming fire. He would make them his fuel. There was this judgment coming for their transgression. Now, for the sake of time, my aim is not to Uh, make this into like a a lecture where we look at the historical fulfillment of all of them. They have all, God's word has come true in every case. So I'm not going to go into great detail of how they happened or when it happened. Um, But I want to focus on the sin or sins of the nation that brought the judgment of God, because we can take that to heart. People comprise nations. Moral failure in people leads to moral failure of a nation. Right? If the people are upright and serving God, well, the nation will serve the Lord. But when people begin to depart from the Lord, there is a problem in the whole nation. and affects everyone. Even in Babylon, there can be a Daniel, someone who is faithful and who serves the Lord. And, may, and in Australia, we could be under condemnation as well as a nation. However, we have people that God has revealed himself to who are born again and we are to be following him, obeying him, walking uprightly without fear of man. And that's what marked Daniel's life. It's like he, had no fe- he, he put aside the fear of man, and he chose to publicly honor and obey God through praying to him, through fulfilling his commitment before the Lord. Amos was like a doctor who was giving a grave diagnosis to the nations. A doctor doesn't always know for certain if the condition is just genetic or if there were some factors you've been exposed to some contaminant. But God, in every case, he reveals why the judgment's coming. So he says definitively, the judgment is coming for this, this one thing. And he gave them space to repent. God didn't just say, give them the grave diagnosis without any hope. It was up to them if they would choose him. And that's what God did through Jonah in Nineveh. 
He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He didn't say, but if you repent, things will change. The people were convicted. They put on sackcloth on themselves and animals and didn't drink or eat for three days. And they said, who knows if God will be gracious and turn aside his wrath from us. And God did. That's the heart of God, to preserve life. He has no delight in the death of the wicked, but that they turn from their wickedness and live. He says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Our introduction to Hazael is when he was sent by the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad II, to ask Elisha if he would recover from his illness. And Elisha said, he will certainly recover, but he will die. And then he started crying. And Hazael's like, you know, like, what's going on? He, he was a little embarrassed because Elisha's just breaking down in front of him. In 2 Kings 8, 12, Hazael said, why is my Lord weeping? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. And he said, the Lord has shown me that you are going to be the next king of Syria. So Hazael returns back and he says, oh, king, you're going to live. And then the next day, it says he took a thick cloth, he soaked it in water and suffocated him. So he became king. He wasn't willing to wait. And someone who would do that to their own king, how will they treat their enemies? Pretty bad. And that's exactly what Hazael did. So because of the sin of Israel, God delivered into the hand of their enemies. But they were cruel in the administration of this justice. Heavy-handed, brutal, cruel treatment. See, threshing, with an, threshing is an interesting thing because when you thre- thresh the wheat or the grain, you want to use just enough force to remove the husk from it so it's edible. You want to preserve the, the meat of the grain whole, but it's like he pulverized it. He used an implement of iron to just rip it apart, and so judgment for them would come because they were brutal and cruel in their treatment of God's people. Can we thresh with implements of iron? Well, yes, we can. When we're cruel with our words and deeds, and I think about with our kids, that we could use a hand when just a corrective word is all that's needed, where we could have an unnecessary punishment just to inflict pain rather than to seek the restoration of someone because we're offended and we're hurt. We're angry by it. And so uh, Hazael, he just burned with rage, and he was brutal in his execution of justice. Damascus would be destroyed. The gate bar would be torn down. They would have no defense, and they would be ripped apart. They would go into captivity for their sin. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. So God now roars against the Philistines and he would not take away their punishment because they took captive the whole captivity, not that they needed servants or slaves, but they sold them to Edom for
for profit. In the ancient world, it was customary that you would take defeated enemies and they would become your servants or be put under tribute, but they were greedy for gain. They crossed the line into becoming human traffickers so that they could benefit, and they sold them to a nation that hated them and that would mistreat them. They showed no compassion whatsoever. And when, when I read through these, I just step, take a step back and say, this was sin upon sin upon sin upon sin, and God boils down the sin of a nation to one thing. Just this one thing, and that shows me how bad sin is. Just like for one, one sin is all that's required for God's wrath and vengeance to come upon us, his judgment. And God is not obligated to provide an exhaustive list for every reason. Well, well, my actions really justified because you did this, 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 and this. He doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to explain himself to us at all because he's God. He says, for this sin, this is what is going to happen. This judgment is coming. And this pronouncement, it comes from God's love and grace so that nations will hear, so people will repent, so that we might see it as an example and take note of it and repent ourselves. When we are greedy, when we are cruel, when we are harsh, Paul sets forth that principle in Romans 15.4 that everything written in the Old Testament scriptures is for our learning. The eventual destruction of all these places, the fulfillment of God's word, it should speak to us. There should be something we take note of and say, well, this is what happened because of this one thing. A whole nation was finished. There's no more Philistines around. God's word has come true because of the judgment for sin. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. The sin of Tyre, similar to that of the Philistines, uh, that they delivered the whole captivity up to Edom. What they did differently is that they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. After Solomon was made king of Israel, he sent a request to King Hiram of Tyre, and he asked him to supply cedar for the building of the temple. And he said, hey, you guys, there's no one that can hew timber like you guys. Can you work with me? I'll pay you. Bring the, the timber so we can build the house of the Lord. And 1 Kings 5, it says that King Hiram always loved David. So he's like, oh, man. He was so excited in 1 Kings 5, 7. So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. They had a, a friendship, a brotherhood. And they made a covenant, it says in 1 Kings 5.12. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. So 150 years have passed-ish from the split of the kingdom, but that covenant was still in full force before God. He's like, you guys have made an agreement with each other, but you've gone back on your word. You forgot that they were your brothers, that you were to have peace with them. And instead, you took them captive and you sold them off. And really, you sold out for gain. You forgot the deal, the agreement you made. And God would keep his word. Alexander the Great would 
besiege and sack Tyre, make them captives. I was thinking about covenant and agreement with God. During the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. To go to heaven, we must be, as we talked about at the camp in John chapter 3, we must be born again. We need to be spiritually regenerated. Jesus also said that we must be converted Unless we become as a little child and converted, we shall not see the kingdom of heaven. And to be converted can only happen after you're born again. There's that spiritual change, that rebirth that happens inside through the Holy Spirit. But conversion is when you turn from the, the sinful lifestyle you've repented of and you turn to God. There's been a change in your life. So we can say, Lord, Lord. But unless we do the will of God, there's no evidence that we have actually been born again. Could you turn your Bibles to Matthew 21, starting in verse 28? The context of this parable were unbelieving Pharisees who questioned Jesus' authority. Who gave you this authority? Like, what right do you have to say the things you're saying to us? Remember, these were the religious leaders. They were the the doctors, the lawyers, the authority in Jerusalem. So they weren't from some, you know, whoop, whoop town. They were Jerusalem. Matthew twenty-one twenty-eight. Jesus says, but what do you think? A man had two sons. He came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. The first son in that story, he initially said, No way, I'm not going. But his conscience spoke to him. He regretted it. He's like, ah, I should go. It'd be the right thing. So he went. He did this father's will. The second son, he cheerfully agreed. He looked pretty good. Like, yep, dad, anything you say. But then he never showed. It's those who do the will of God who actually have him as Lord and Savior. So we can't earn the salvation of God. He's made a covenant with us. And we, we need to do right in keeping that covenant, doing what he says too. Not just wanting salvation from him, but because he saved us to want to serve and obey him because we love him too. What we say is important, but what we do is important as well. It was good that Hiram and Solomon made this treaty and this agreement, but it would have been better for them to be peaceable towards each other. Amos 1, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Timan, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Now, Edom and uh, Israel, they had a long history that began in the womb, right? They were wrestling as babies. Edom, that's the descendants of Esau. Israel, 
the descendants of Jacob. After Israel came out of Egypt, they politely asked the Edomites if they could pass through their land. They said, we'll stay on the highway. We're not going to eat your food. We're not going to leave a bunch of rubbish along the road. We'll even pay for the water that we use. Please let us pass by. You know we've, we've had it tough. And they go, no way. We're coming out with you with a fighting force if you step on our land. You shall not pass through. So they refuse to give Israel passage. There's other passages like Ezekiel 35 and the whole book of Obadiah that was speaking about the sins of Edom. How when, this is future, when Jerusalem was sacked, the Edomites were laughing. They were dancing in the streets. When they saw some Israelites trying to escape, they go, hey, Babylonians, check those guys out. They're getting away. They pointed them out, and they, they hoped to gain from their brother's fall. They had an eye for the spoil and for their land, and they just were happy to see their, their enemy fall when they were brothers. It says that Edom pursued Israel with the sword. They cast off all pity. Their anger tore. Perpetually, they nursed a grudge against them. They hated them. They felt like you know, Jacob swindled us out of the blessing. He swindled us out of the birthright. And we've got an ax to grind with you. And I've sharpened my sword. The, the sharp words that are coming out of my mouth. And my sword is ready. 1 John 3.15, it says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We don't have to have a sharp sword to have a sharp tongue, to have vengeful thoughts towards others. To seek to cut down, to undermine, to stab in the back. We have that festering unforgiveness and bitterness that we don't even know is there that God will convict us of. And we can justify ourselves and say, I have a right to be angry like Jonah when God had saved the nation, the city of uh, Nineveh. But it's like, is it right for you to be angry? Yes, even to death. We can be there. <laughs> we, we're satisfied. We're secretly delighted when we see them fail or struggling. You know, I, I, this is easy for me in sport. You have your rival teams, and when your rival team loses, you're like, good. You're like, their best quarterback goes down with a, a broken leg, and you're like, perfect. That's eight weeks out. That gives us a chance. I mean, come on. Where's your compassion? So now I see someone go down, I don't care if it's my team or theirs, I'm like, oh man, that's a bummer. I really feel for that guy. But that's not me naturally. Naturally, I like to see the, the opposition get a bit weaker. But God forbid, as his children, because we're to be loving people, even in sport, even in business, even in family where we've been hurt. And there's a lot of history Amos 1, verse 13. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead, that they might enlarge their territory. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle, a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their kings shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Ammon was a descendant of Lot, the nephew of Abraham, and they too, they killed the pregnant women and their children to hopefully exterminate the Israelites so that their territory could be enlarged. They were, they were not content with the land that God had given them. And so they were willing to 
just brutally exterminate their enemies so that they could have their land for themselves. So it was this greed, this discontent, and they took advantage of the weak. They sought gain at the expense of the most vulnerable. And so they saw the helpless, they slaughtered them. And God would see that those greedy folks lost all that they had. He said, I'm going to send a fire. There's going to be a battle, and you're going to lose everything. So how can this relate to us? And for me, uh, what came to mind was like business, unethical business practices, where we do, and I think it's very natural for us to have segmented part of our lives where there's a way to be a good sportsman, you know, competitive and win at any cost, and kind of the world will promote that. Or perhaps in business, like good business, cutthroat. Um, not taking into like a hostile takeover, not thinking about the employees and their families, not thinking about how when they're aging in the workplace and how that would impact their family. Like that doesn't, how, how to show love to them. Like that's almost like it doesn't really match with good business and loving people and compassion because there's a bottom line. And we're not, con- we're not happy with our bottom line. If we can expand our borders, if we could have more, then it's better business, Right? It could be a dog-eat-dog affair with the pursuit of money and power and prestige. And if we're reduced to a place where we can distance ourselves from caring for people, from the fear of God, when we make decisions that are strictly business, we can justify hatred and cold-blooded murder to get something for our gain. Right? It's just business. Really. Is anything just business? Let us walk in love, even if it costs us. Amos 2, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound. And I will cut off the judge from its midst, and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. Moab was the brother of Ammon also, the son of Lot. This burning of the king's bones to lime, it's an obscure reference. It's not found in the Bible. It's generated a lot of conjecture about what exactly happened in that 2 Kings 3, 26 and 27 passage. It talks about the king of Moab trying to to go after the king of Edom. He wasn't able to, and so he took his own son and he sacrificed him as an offering to his God. It's like he, he, he wanted so much vengeance and he wasn't able to get at the king that to hoping that his God could help him, he sacrificed his son. Now, some people say that um, it's not the face value of the passage, but that he kidnapped the son, so the future king of Moab, and he, he sacrificed him. But I think it's a better interpretation to take the word at face value and like, because they were unable to get to the king, they desecrated the remains of a previous king, which was really hitting below the belt, to take someone out of their grave, to take and, and to burn them to lime. You, get, you need like 900 degrees Celsius to do that. And uh, so it was just really spitting in their face. It, it, was, it was shameful what they did. 
I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. They couldn't destroy the living, so they disturbed the dead. For that rage, God would send a fire. Their intent would be returned on their own head. God roared upon the nations for sin after sin after sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Thankfully, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. But in God's punishment, he would send a fire for their cruelty. So I've, I've put them all together now. So for their cruelty, their lack of compassion, their greed, how they ignored a covenant or an agreement they made, how they pursued their brethren with a sword, how they nursed a grudge, how they were not content with God's provision, how they were selfish, their intense hatred towards others. God's people were victimized by all these sins. All these sins had to do with these neighboring nations taking out their anger and vengeance and hatred upon them. It shows that the sinful conduct of others, it can hurt us. It can have an impact, a long-reaching impact. I mean, you think about Edom. I mean, for their whole existence, they were always at each other's throats. It's really sad. And we have suffered, too, at the hands of those who were heavy-handed and cruel. Maybe something even in your childhood that still left a mark on you. Where there was... um, a grudge nursed against you. There was hatred shown towards you. And of course, we can do these things as well. As children of God, it's for us to examine ourselves to see that I'm not walking in greed or hatred or nursing a grudge towards others. But if somebody has done that towards me, that I can trust that God knows about it and that in his time and in his way, he will settle the deal. But I don't need to take vengeance for myself because he will protect me. This was an issue among the children of Israel. They wanted the day of the Lord to come. That's how bad things were. They had been brutalized. They had been victimized. It was their women and children who had been killed. And the earth had been watered with their blood. And they're like, come on, God, bring the judgment upon them. But God called them out in Amos chapter 5.18. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness, not light. So they were filled with hypocrisy. And they would be called out for that because he's like, you shouldn't be asking for the day of the Lord because as we get into chapter two and chapter three and the rest, God had things to say against his people too. He starts off by addressing all these other nations, but he takes square aim at his people and he says, guys, you've been doing wrong too. So yeah, the fire is going to come and devour their palaces, but don't think that you're exempt from consequences for sin. Because you're not innocent in this matter. So God did not just roar against the nations, but he had something loud to say against his people too. So what does God tell us to do when we have been impacted by the sin of others? When we've been wounded, when we've had the equivalent of, uh, you know, that things taken from us, that, and, and, We are suffering because of sin. Turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Now we are 
blessed that the Lord's given us a nation where there is a judicial and a legal system to uphold righteousness, to protect the innocent and promote peace. But ultimately, our hope or our trust is not in ourselves or in the legal system, um, but in God, that we trust him. We are going to rely upon him, not just to right a wrong, but to heal and to restore us. Romans 12, verse 17, it says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, how hard would that be if your village you were raised in and family members that you knew had been killed by the Edomites and there's a thirsty Edomite that you see wandering down the road? Like, there's your enemy. Enemies were called by Christ to love, to love them, to care for them, to overcome evil with good. Not saying that what happened was not evil. It was evil, totally evil. But as much as depends on us to live peaceably with all. So instead of avenging ourselves, we'll give time and space for God to do his work, that he will take the appropriate action, and our kind deeds toward them will provoke repentance, that they will come to their senses. And they'll have a restoration of a relationship with God. See, we're not at the mercy of evil when we trust God. We're never at the mercy of evil because good, it's not like good overcomes evil, like it's like weighing the balances, but God is good and Jesus has overcome. And so we have strength and confidence and courage and comfort and rest in him. So instead of focusing on how other people seem to get away with murder and they seem to be prospering and their borders are enlarging and they seem to be doing well, let's rejoice that we have been blessed beyond measure having received God's love, his forgiveness, his healing, that all our springs are in him, our life is in him, that he knows how much you've suffered and that there's healing in him. There is. So let's not uh, repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are good that you are gracious and kind, you're compassionate and full of mercy, that you are slow to wrath. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us if we have been cruel, if we have nursed a grudge because of old hurts or new hurts, that we have um, been selfish or sought to increase our, our borders because of greed or that we've threshed with implements of iron. We have been heavy-handed instead of letting you do your marvelous work. So I pray, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts, that we would be those who, who do love one another, who do overcome evil with good, who do love even enemies. Thank you, Lord, that you have shown us the way, that you have demonstrated your love for us while we were yet sinners through dying on the cross. And I pray that we would humble ourselves. We would become small so that you would be glorified. You would be lifted up. And through our 
testimony, Lord, drawing all people to yourself. And thank you, Lord, that it's not we who do anything, um, but you through us. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you that you are just. I also thank you that you're patient, forgiving, and you heal those who cry out to you. I pray you do that work now in Jesus' name. Amen.